The following sermon audio has been brought to you by Christ Church Downtown. For more information, go to Christkirk.com. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's rise and worship the triune God. The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. He will fulfill the desire of those who are in all of him. He will hear their cry and save them. Amen. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Let us pray. O Lord, you are the King, eternal, immortal, and invisible, the only wise God, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. You fill the heavens and the earth, and in you we live and move and have our being. We come to you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, the one who descended from heaven in order to be lifted up, that all who believe in him may have eternal life in your presence. It is this Jesus who is now seated and reigning at your right hand till you make all his enemies his footstool. He will shatter kings on the day of your wrath and execute judgment among the nations. As your people, we are gathered here this morning in your spirit, eager to magnify you with thanksgiving and to triumph in your praise. We rejoice in your salvation and glory in your holy name. We ask you to open our lips this morning so that we may worship you in spirit and in truth. Let the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And amen. The past few weeks, we have been visiting different passages of Proverbs, and today we will meditate on Proverbs 9, verses 7 through 9. It reads, He who corrects a scoffer gets shame for himself, and he who rebukes a wicked man only harms himself. Do not correct a scoffer, lest he hate you. Rebuke a wise man, and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man, and he will still be wiser. Teach a just man, and he will increase in learning. So in this passage, we are taught to distinguish between the wicked and the wise when offering correction and rebuke. Get it wrong, you will receive shame, harm, and hate. Get it right, and you will receive love from the wise man and the pleasure of seeing his wisdom and knowledge grow. And at this time, you may be thinking of someone in your life that could use a good rebuke and whether or not they're wicked or wise, and how you can tell. And that's fine, but this morning I want you not to think of your husband or wife, your children or your friend or your neighbor or that coworker. Instead, think of you. Are you the wicked or the wise man? When a brother comes to you with correction after you witness your outbursts of anger in the Logos parking lot, do you love him or do you hate him? When a sister takes the time to call you and rebukes you for gossiping in that group text, do you love her or do you hate her? Or when your mother disciplines you for lazy disobedience, do you love her or do you hate her? Far too often in our pride, we become like the wicked man, impervious to rebuke, averse to any correction, quick to turn hard conversations about our sin back on the one who loved us enough to bring it up. This should not be so. As Christians, we are to be like the wise man in this passage, loving those who brings us, bring us correction, appreciating the friends that God uses to keep us on the narrow path, those who, are willingly, those who willingly love us and confront us so that we may learn and grow. 
And as a community of believers, we must submit ourselves to one another with joy, casting off our rags of pride and clothing ourselves with humility. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And yes, sometimes someone may come to you with a concern that after some reflection is not legitimate. Maybe they overheard a conversation, missed the context, and felt compelled to track you down. When this happens, rejoice. Rejoice and thank God for brothers and sisters that care. All of us should be eager to pray the words of David in Psalm 141 saying, Father, let a righteous man strike me, it is kindness. Let him rebuke me, it is oil for my head, so let not my head refuse it. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Father, we come before you recognizing our need of your grace. Often we are so prideful, believing ourselves to be right when we are desperately wrong. We foolishly close our ears to the loving instruction of others, maintaining a hard heart and clutching onto sin that we should hate. We ask that you would soften our hearts and make us ready to receive correction with humble joy, believing that as our Father, you discipline us for our good. And though for a moment the rebuke may sting, we know that it will yield abundant fruit of righteousness when we take heed and repent. We confess our individual sins to you now in Selah. We ask all of this in the strong name of Jesus, and amen. Please rise for the assurance of pardon. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. The good news of the gospel is that your sins are forgiven. Please remain standing as we read. Sermon text for today. Sermon text comes from Philippians 2, verses 5 through 18. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death of the cross. Therefore God also highly exalted him and has given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, and of those in heaven, and of those on earth, and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless children of God, without whom, <coughs> sorry, without fault, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. For the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, in the midst of a world of division, you have called us into perfect unity with your Son. We have that unity in truth, 
and you are determined to work that unity out in us in reality in this world at this time. Therefore, open our hearts and our minds to this reality that we may truly glorify you in all we do. And amen. Please be seated. Well, we live in a fascinating generation, a revolutionary generation, and as every revolution needs new words and new terms, uh, ours has some of those. One of which caught my attention recently is the word intersectionality. Intersectionality. Well, this word embodies this idea that regardless of what kind of group you're in, whether a minority group uh, that's being persecuted, whether you're a, a female or a person of color or maybe uh, due to a gender confusion, you're, you're receiving some sort of uh, persecution. The idea of intersectionality is the idea that, that all that is coming from the same source. Your persecution is all from the same source. Regardless of what your particular grievance is, it's all coming from the same place. And so since these are all coming from the same source, they claim that this becomes somewhat of a unifying force, a unifying kind of thing for that group, for all these different uh, diverse groups. And on the political front, uh, you only have to read the headlines to know that there's one political party that's determined to kind of bring all these diverse groups, all these people of grievance together to form a majority coalition. And you could call it unity uh, based on a common complaint or a common enemy. But uh, in my mind, it kind of has that Orwellian kind of nuance. You could think of it like a, like a campaign phrase of difference equals sameness. Difference equals sameness. Well. We're, we're not in that camp. We're in a camp of what's called Christians. And what does a Christian worldview expect regarding unity in light of the fact that we live with real diversity? Our text today sets the foundation for true unity. And in chapters 1 and 2, in his letter to the Philippians, Paul makes the point that unity is only possible. Unity is only possible through humility. Anything less will dissolve into some level of disunity, some form of strife that's based on ambition, selfish ambition, and conceit, as he says in verse two, uh, sorry, verse three of chapter two. So with humility in view, Paul exhorts his readers to be of one mind in 127, like-minded in one mind in 2.2, with a lowliness of mind in chapter two, verse three, and capping it off with an arch example of having the mind of Christ. That's where our text is in, in uh, chapter two, verses five through 18. So uh, if you can kind of follow through the, the outline there. We're going to kind of cover uh, this, uh, the mind of, uh, sorry, the, um, uh, this idea of unity followed through by the, um, look, I didn't even look at my own, ex- my own outline here. It's got to be good, though. Let's just see. Uh, no, the, the glory behind unity, then the mind of Christ, and then how we're going to have that road to like-mindedness followed by the outcome of that mind, the outcome of obedience. Well, from his letter, we know that Paul was concerned about unity. Uh, we have that, we have that uh, clearly in chapter 3. Paul is warning the Philippians against the Judaizers. Those are the people who are forcing the, the new Gentile believers to be circumcised and follow the Jewish laws and ordinances. And then in chapter 4, Paul implores two Christian women, uh, Euodia and Syntyche, to be of the same mind in the Lord. Now, these disputes were causing division and dissensions in the church, and so Paul is kind of hitting this head on. But more than just the fact that he had some dis- 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 discrepancies, this disunity in the church... Paul understood that unity carries with it a glory and a testimony that is central to the gospel message. It was more than just solving some kind of like uh, uh, relational problems within the church. It's central to the gospel message. 
And uh, Jim Wilson, his little book, if you haven't read it, uh, is entitled, uh, on unity, is entitled, I Have Given Them the Glory. I Have Given Them the Glory. And you're like, unity, giving them the glory? Like, where is Jim coming from? Well, Jim's little book is titled, based on John 17, verses 22 and 23, which read like this. And the, this is Jesus' prayer. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one, just as we are one, I and them, and you and me, and they may be made perfect in me, that they may be made perfect in me, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. So Jesus is praying this prayer, and look at the three different elements that are coming out of that prayer. He's saying, I'm praying that they may have this glory, that they may be made perfect in being one, that they may show the world, that the world may know that the God the Father sent Jesus for the salvation of the world, and three, and this all manifests God's love for the world. So that it may be made perfect, that the world may know that uh, Jesus is a, the only source of salvation, and because this all happens because God loves us. That's, that's the message behind Jesus' prayer. That's the idea of the glory that we received. Well, that's very potent. And in fact, if we are in fact one in Christ and in one body, unity must be the necessary outcome. And, uh, and this, is necessary, this is a necessary picture of God's love for the world. Our perfection, unity, and evangelism are all tied together. And we shouldn't, that shouldn't come as any surprise. I mean, we sang Psalm uh, 133 today about how pleasant it is uh, to be in unity. That's like oil coming off the head and the beard of Aaron. And again, this is like a, an anointing oil. It was a holy oil coming off his head or the dew coming off Mount Hermon. And who wants to live in a house with a contentious person? Who wants to live in a house with contentious family members, brothers and sisters? Who wants to live in a church where dissension and, 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 and disputes and arguing and fighting are going? Nobody wants to do that. The world knows that. The problem with the world is that they just don't know how to get there. But we as a church have been given instruction. In Paul's day, the leaders were boasting about their credentials. Chapter 3, Paul mocks the Judaizers, listing his own Jewish credentials. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I was from the tribe of Benjamin, a Pharisee, a persecutor of the church, just to show them, look, you got nothing on me. But he was doing that in a mocking way because of their boasting about their credentials. Well, in our day, we have people boasting about their credentials, but their credentials are different nowadays. Nowadays, it's about how grieved I am. You know, what, what's, uh, what persecution have I faced for, for how I look or what I believe or whatever? And, but those being part of a grievance or being part of someone who's proud about their, their uh, curriculum vitae ends up with the same problem, that you end up with competing factions, measuring by number or perceived severity the things they've suffered. Who, who's better? Who's more important? Who deserves more attention on the political front or on the, on the media front? All these are the outcome of selfish ambition and conceit. Paul says. Well, this week I, I stopped by Jim's house to ask him. I said, Jim, I'm going to be talking about uh, unity, of which you've written a book, right? So I don't want to like, go too far off the reservation. And uh, <clears throat> he commented that everybody likes the idea or the ideal of unity, but they're not so happy about it once they learn the pathway to unity or how getting, un getting to unity is understood. And that brings us to our main text here in, in chapter 2, verse 5, where we are commanded, first, first verse, right? Let this mind, that's a command, let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. And then Paul goes on to describe the mind of Christ via his actions. It's not about some, some thought, thought process. He talks about how the mind of Christ looks in reality. Namely, that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, and that son, in obedience, emptied himself by not remaining in his rightful place as God in heaven, but humbled himself, taking on the lowest possible place as a position as a slave, 
as a murderer and suffering the death on the most heinous, the most uh, grievous instruments of torture ever invented, the cross. Now, if you read that command, you know, in the past when Jim would give a sermon, I loved to, I used to preach over the Chinese church and, and uh, I took Jim's place when he got a little bit too old to go over there and, and I asked him, I said, what do you do when you go over and teach at the Chinese church? He goes, well, I just usually read the passage and then I just ask them, are you doing it? And then he kind of stops there. I said, well, that makes for a short sermon. I said, I got to stretch this out for 40 minutes. So he said, no, okay, that's what he does. But really, when you read a passage like this and you're commanded, have the mind of Christ, and you've just read about what that mind looks like, if your response is like mine, it's like, what? You know, how am I going to do that? I have a hard enough time being like-minded with my, my wonderful wife of 33 and a half years. In fact, it's, it's so unusual that we sometimes think the same things that we made a game out of. It's like, hey, we thought the same thing. We should kiss on this. This is an amazing, this is like a... <laughs> A momentous event, you know, it's kind of like, uh, you know, Valentine's, we should celebrate. Well, uh, as much as that's very motivating for me, I can still say it's a, it's, a, it's a struggle to get there. Now, just imagine casting that a bit wider. Uh, how am I to be like-minded with my children or the elders or the, the other churches? Uh, not to mention a church full of what? Men and women, old and young, different ethnicities different net worse, you name it. We're full of diversity here. We've got full of differences, and yet we're called to be like-minded. Well, Paul, this is kind of coming to the point two of the, uh, point two of the, the outline here. Paul addresses this beginning in, in verse 127 of Philippians. He says, stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. So he says, here's this one, this one mind thing, and it's about having a common purpose, an alignment of purpose, not necessarily an alignment of methods. He says they're commanded to strive together for the faith of the gospel. Well, that seems reasonable. I can do that with my wife and I could strive together for the purpose of raising our children, the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. I guess I could work with like-minded evangelical churches for the advancement of the gospel. Uh, that seems pretty straightforward. So at least if we focus on uh, the, where we're going, the purpose, the gospel, that should keep us aligned. But Paul, has, has, has more, there's more to it than this. There's more to having unity than just having a common purpose or a common goal. In that same verse, he begins with fast in one spirit. We have to begin this purpose fast in one spirit. So it's based on an action on a unity of heart. And in two, chapter 2, verse 2, Paul links successful unity with having the same love that brings about full accord, being of one mind. He says, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love being of one accord and one mind. So this connection of the spirit, he's saying you have to be of one spirit. It's going to result in love for the brothers, love for one another, to get this all pulled together. And this means that unity is more than just teeth-gritting accommodations. Like, okay, I'll get along with these people because I just, I got to do it. I got to have the mind of Christ. I got to grip my teeth. No, it's based on having a commonality that rests in the heart, not just in the purpose. It has a purpose, same purpose, but it's also resting in our heart. The presence of the spirit of Christ being fully active with the fruit of the spirit. That is love. You know, one of the things I really like to talk about is like the will of God. Uh, and I like to coach young people, and they're like, I just need to know the will of God in my life. I'm like, you do. Uh, and so um, <clears throat> I said, you just need to follow a simple test. That's all you got to follow a simple test. It's that easy. And um, I said, what's the test? Well, the test is, that do you have evidence of the fruit of the Spirit in your life? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. If you have that in your life, if that's fully evident, then that's an indication that you're filled with the Spirit, right? Be filled with the Spirit, and these will be the fruit. If the fruit's there, that means you're filled with the Spirit, and if you're filled with the Spirit, you will be thinking and acting according to God's will. 
your decisions will be spiritual because you're under the direction of his spirit. And that's what Paul's saying here. If you're under the direction of the spirit, you will have unity because you'll be directed by the mind of Christ, the Holy Spirit. You see, the spirit doesn't act independently from the father and the son. Christ tells his disciples in John 14 that he is sending the spirit in his stead. I'm going to leave, but I'm going to send the spirit in my stead. He will teach you all things just as I have, uh, and just as Jesus spoke the words of the Father, the Spirit will speak the words of the Son. The Spirit reveals the mind of the Son. So here in this passage, in chapter 2, verse 5 through 7, we have that mind illustrated. And you'll notice in this illustration that it's not just a theoretical illustration of Christ's mind. It's not like Jesus just moved from like CEO to janitor. It's like, hey, you know, I was CEO, but, you know, to show my humility, I'm going to be like a janitor for a while. No, he didn't move from that. He moved from perfect love to perfect hatred that resulted in immeasurable suffering. By his stripes, we were healed. His features were marred beyond recognition. He was humiliated, rejected, persecuted. You can add your own verbs. And, but we can't, you know, really, we can't kind of get there. We can't get to that, that idea of leaving from the highest point of being God to the lowest point of death on a cross. But here it is. And if we consider Paul, his disciple of Christ's life, and looking at kind of how he, he took on the mind of Christ, if he says, follow me as I imitate Christ, here it is in 2 Corinthians 11, he says, this is how I, I kind of live this out. He says, from the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've been in the deep. In journeys often, in perils in waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil and sleeplessness, often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings, often, in cold and nakedness, and besides all the other things that come upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. So here we have Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ, here. I'm imitating what we see here in chapter 2, verses 5 through 7. Well, at the end of our text, in chapter 2, verses 17 and 18, Paul kind of, you know, kind of comes back to this. He says, I rejoice in the suffering that I'm enduring here in Rome. And he's calling the Philippians to be glad and rejoice because, quote, I'm being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith. I'm being poured out as a drink offering for you. I'm suffering these things for you. And Paul doesn't seem to have any kind of cognitive dissonance as a problem of perception and reality when it comes to his understanding of the outworking of the mind of Christ. In 2 Timothy 3.12, Paul makes the observation that anyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Yeah, they'll suffer persecution. Same conclusion as he, as he closes chapter 1 of Philippians in this letter in verse 29. He says, for you, Philippians, it's been granted on behalf of Christ. You guys, it's been, it's been granted. Guess what? What's been granted to you? Not only to believe in Jesus, but also to suffer for his sake. That's been given to us. That's been granted to us. There we have it. Jesus didn't just save you to become happy. He saved you for his purpose of bringing glory to himself through the salvation of the world. You were purchased. You were adopted as sons and appointed or commissioned in his service, which involves suffering for his sake. You are now called to have his mind as your own, his purpose and expectation as your own. As Paul says in Galatians 2.20, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. You know, so as he's to live as Christ, as he's living in Christ, he is living out the manifestation, the example of Christ and the mind of Christ. Well, you know, all this talk about suffering and crucifying is sounding pretty negative. 
it sounds so very hard. You know, if I'm struggling with like-mindedness, like-mindedness with my wife, and I'm struggling with humbling myself in the workplace or in a family setting with my kids, if I complain like a baby when I get the flu, if I moan and groan when my phone isn't working properly, how in the world am I going to have this mind of Christ? Even with the promise of, of glory, how Christ was glorified in this path, how? I, don't, I, just, I kind of wonder, I don't see it's possible, right? I should stop right now. No, you should stop right now. You should stop right there because that kind of thinking is antithetical to the scriptures. It's, it's not according to the text. It's not in alignment with what's being taught in the Philippians, to the Philippians, and it's not being taught in the scriptures, certainly not by Paul. In chapter 1, verse 6, we've already we've heard this verse, right? He says, being confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will what? He will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. So, who began the work? God, right? I was waiting for that one child to kind of like scream out, you know, it's like, didn't hear it, that's okay, well, we're going to work on that, we'll kind of build up a little more energy here. So who will complete the work? God, very good. And what kind of work is it? No, it's not God that time, it's good work. It was, was a trick question, so it's like God, God, then good work. All right, so it's God who began it, God who's going to complete it, it's good work, and just what is that work, you're asking? Yeah, because that sounds like pretty heavy-duty work if I'm going to have the mind of Christ. Well, it says, in, Jesus says in John, uh, 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 well, he says in, um, uh, well, sorry. And it says, what is that work that God's doing in you? It is to conform you to the image of Jesus. When we, we heard the reading today from, the, from Romans 8.28. All things work together for good for those who love God, called according to his purpose. Why? That we might, those who are called might be conformed to the image of Jesus. That's all, the, everything works for good because we're being conformed to the image of Jesus. That's the whole, the point, the point here. So God began that work. He's going to complete it. He's going to make it happen, just like we heard in our reading today. Well, based on these texts, it seems clear that God, who called you while you were still a rebellious sinner, intends to give you the mind of Christ. He just seems like that's his, that's his purpose. And if he gave you forgiveness, why don't you think he can give you a piece of his mind? Most of us seem to have extra pieces of our mind that we give to people, you know. So I'm sure that God has a little bit to spare there. He's going to give you his mind, the mind of Christ. Remember our study through 1 Peter. What happens when we trust in Jesus for our salvation? What happens? Something happens there that, that's significant, amazing, unchangeable. What happens? We are born again. We are born again. We are born again to a new identity. We are born to God's family. You are born into Christ. That's why Paul can confidently say in chapter 1, to live is Christ and to die is gain. I've been born into Christ. And since you're in Christ, what Christ experienced, what Christ experienced in his death, burial, and resurrection, we experience. Think about it like this. Christ died for me. I rose as him. Christ died for me. I rose as him. This is just Romans 6. I died in Christ. I rise with Christ. He died as me. I rise as him. We die together, we now live together. He put us into Christ. He, 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 we are now seated with him in the heavenly places. The question is, do you believe this? And this is, what I, this is where I got confused. This is the work of God. Jesus says in John 6, 29, the work of God is to what? To believe in the one in whom he has sent. Our work is belief. That's the work that Jesus calls us to. He doesn't, he's not calling us to like lift heavy objects. He's saying you need to believe in the one in whom he has sent. That's Jesus. Believe what he said. You know, gratefully... <clears throat> 
Paul anticipates our unbelief. He, he anticipates how difficult looking at a passage like this, you know, when you read these commands, be filled with the Spirit, uh, rejoice always, um, give thanks in all circumstances, uh, have the mind of Christ. When we read these things, we're like, oh, you know. And he says this, he says, in this passage, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And he says, I got the trembling part down, and the fear, I'm kind of right there too. For God who works in you is both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Now, look at this verse about working out our salvation. That's a very common verse, right? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, you kind of know that verse. Well, where is the comfort in that verse? It's in the promise that God is at work both to will and to do for his good pleasure. He's the active agent. Just like it says in chapter 1, verse 6, he's the active agent. He says he's at work to will and to do for his good pleasure. God has expectations, but he is also the one promising to make it happen. He's like, I want you to do this, and I'm going to help you do it. This is the way you need to be. I'm going to make you that way. You need to have the mind of Christ, I'm going to give it to you. You need to be conformed to the image of Christ, I'm going to do it. I'm going to use everything, all things together to make it happen. Wow. You might suppose now that all i got to do is sit back and enjoy the ride. Well, almost. Paul didn't fully dismiss our participation. Paul says we still live in what he calls a perverse and crooked generation. Well, it was perverse and crooked, obviously, in Paul's day, and I don't know if it's changed a lot in our day, you know, maybe certainly in our day, it seems like we live in this perverse and crooked uh, generation. And it's work. It's work to kind of be going against the flow. If you've ever been kind of in a river and maybe someone's tied a rope on you and they're kind of like dragging you upstream and it's like the, the force that you're going through is, is significant. It's incredible. You couldn't do it all by yourself. And that's why God's rope of mercy and grace is, is dragging us, but you're still being drugged upstream. And our faith will be tested in this environment while dealing with worldly habits that we've drugged into the church with us. Yeah, in the midst of this polluting waters, we are called to be blameless. We're called to be harmless. And in order to do that, we have to reorient our thinking by faith. We have to think differently to see all things as coming from a loving and merciful God. Well, that will make you certainly out of step with the world if you live your life with the mind of Christ, which is going to be reflected in what? No grumbling, no complaining, no disputing. Now, why, why are those things such a temptation? Why do I grumble? Why do I dispute? Why do these things happen? Well, think about it like this. <clears throat> Just imagine that you're in a prison, and it's one of those group prisons. There's like 100 strong guys in this prison. Okay, just trying to put your head there. And every day, the jailer brings a big pot of soup. And there's enough soup in there for everybody, but it's just one pot and 100 guys. So they bring the pot in, and what happens? Everybody's looking at that pot of soup. Everyone knows there's just enough. And they're thinking, oh, man, that is just, that's probably not enough soup. It's probably not very good soup anyway. Probably not enough meat. It's too hot, too cold, too whatever. And then, even though they might be grumbling about the soup that's coming in, they're hungry and they're disputing and they're fighting to contend for their portion. Because they think, if I don't get my portion, if somebody gets more than I get, which is likely going to happen, I'm not going to get enough. And if I don't get enough, I'm going to starve. So I'm going to fight. I'm going to dispute. I'm going to, I'm going to tooth and nail it to get my portion of that soup. Well, you see that all that's driven, that, that, that grumbling, the fighting, the disputing is all driven by the fact that there's a limited amount. There's only one pot of soup and there's a hundred hungry eyes there, all going for that soup. But in God's world, it's not like that. There's no one pot. It's an unlimited pot. It's an unlimited soup. It's an amazing soup. It's an unlimited banquet. There's no limit. So you don't have to like grumble and complain, I don't get enough, it's not going to be very good, you know, I don't know what to do. And you don't have to worry, if I don't get in there tooth and nail, if I don't dispute for my position, if I don't take my rights, I'm not going to get what I deserve. 
No, it's, it's, it doesn't run dry. The pot doesn't run dry. There's no limit. Paul emphasizes that in chapter 3 of the of Philippians in verses 20 and 21. He says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he was able to even subdue all things to himself. Now, this is interesting. You know, first of all, Paul says that he's going to work everything in this life to conform us to the image of the mind of Christ. And then he says, and not only that, but when we get to heaven, I'm going to, conf- I'm going to transform your body into a glorious body. I'm going, to transform, I'm going to transform your mind to be glorious here. I'm going to transform your body to be glorious there. It's all about glory. It's all about the fact that it's plentiful. There is no limit. Well, if there's no limit, why do I still complain? Why do I still grumble sometimes? Well, it happens because of the sin of unbelief. The sin of unbelief. We don't believe it. And this is the grand divide we have in this world. Either we are of the mind that it is a doggy dog world. There's an evolutionary world where it's just like doggy dog. We gotta we gotta fight for whatever we can get. We live in this planet of random cruelty, or we are governed by a loving and gracious God who cares for us, who has humbled himself to connect himself to us forever, has his beloved children and made us heirs to all he has. If we really, really, really believe this, such that we act as blameless and harmless children who don't grumble or dispute, then we'll stand out, as Paul says, for the evangelists in the world. We will, as he says, shine as lights in the world. We'll shine as lights in a very dark place. I mean, that's, that's what Paul says his job was. He says to turn people from darkness to light, from Satan to God. Well, you can't turn someone from darkness to light. There's no light, right? So there's got to be light. So you can see the obvious connection with evangelism, light versus darkness. But can you also see the glory? I began with Jesus' prayer where he says, he gave us his glory. And C.S. Lewis, in his essay on the weight of glory, describes it like this. For glory meant good report with God, acceptance by God, response, acknowledgement, and welcome into the heart of things. You know, sometimes we think about glory as just like a shining light. You know, it's like it was shiny. It was like some kind of, you know, startling kind of thing. And Lewis kind of ties into our hearts here. He says, no, there's a, there's a father hunger here. There's a need we have to be connected to our fathers, but more importantly, to be connected to the Heavenly Father, to our Heavenly Father, to the Father of all things. And he says that acceptance, that approval, that acknowledgement and welcome into his heart That's the ultimate glory. Well, this is one way of acknowledgement, the fulfillment of our father hunger, right? To be fully accepted, hearing these words, well done, good and faithful servant. I want to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. And you know what? We've already kind of received that, right? If we're in Christ, who received the words, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased? The Lord Jesus received that at his baptism. He's already received, well done, good and faithful servant. You are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. We are now in Christ. That means we're hearing those same words. The pleasure of God is on us to hear those words for us. God is well pleased in us. There are words of encouragement. And while we're challenged to accept humility and suffering associated with being the like mind of Christ, this is countered by the glory of this acceptance, this approval. We already are approved in Christ. Therefore, as it says, God also highly exalted him and given him the name of a, which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, those in heaven and those in the earth and those under the earth, 
and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. We are in that. So that's how we are called to have that mind because we are in the glory that Christ is receiving. The world needs, the world kneels, we are received, and the Father is glorified. So in summary, like-mindedness with Christ begins with our confidence of being in Him. We will not have the mind of Christ if we're not in Him, fully and completely in Him. We are born again into the pleasure of the Father because of the obedience of Jesus. Now in that pleasure, we respond with joyful submission and obedience, counting others better than ourselves, serving one another without grumbling or complaining, knowing that our Father saves and serves us without measure. Our Father saves us and serves us without measure. And when this isn't true, in other words, you say, well, but what happens when I'm not there? Matt, you're still like putting forward this, this kind of ideal. I still feel like I'm just not there. Well, if you've understood the message, the message is that it's a, it's, a, it's a problem of unbelief, then if you find you're not there, then the first thing you confess is not that I'm not there. You confess your position of unbelief. God, I'm not remembering that I'm in you. I'm not remembering your love. I'm not remembering your pleasure in me as your child. I'm not remembering that you are going to do all the work. You began it. You're going to continue it. You're going to complete it. You're going to bring it about. And you're using at this moment all things, all things, good, bad, indifferent, painful, ugly, you know, you're using all things together for my good to accomplish this purpose. So if you are not in that position, then the first thing you need to do is just confess, God, I'm not believing this. Start with an accurate confession. Not about the end, the, the, the kind of the symptomatic sin, but the heart sin. The heart sin is, I don't believe it. Help me to believe. Be like that man It's like, Lord, I don't believe. Help my unbelief. That's a prayer we can all pray, right? And does God hear that prayer? Well, we know that's a prayer according to God's will, right? That he wants to help our unbelief because that's the work of God. This is the work of God that we believe in the Son is whom he has sent. So, God will hear that prayer. He will answer that prayer. Call out. That is what we can do. You're a new creation, says in 2 Corinthians 5. You become the righteousness of God. Again, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. Now, in closing, let me just challenge you to relook at a well-known passage. We're going to hit it later on in Philippians, but it's a very well-known passage. Philippians 4, 4 through 6. Right? Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice, so you know that passage. But what I challenge you to do is look at where that passage is located. It's located right after Paul rebukes uh, Yodia and Syntyche for having an argument and challenging the brothers to get them together. It's like, brothers, get them together. They're having this argument. They're having this ascension. They've worked in the gospel. They're gospel partners. They're, they're believers. They're having this trouble. Get them together. Think about this thing. And in doing this, what, how do you do that? How do you get them together? Here it is. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord's at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. With thanksgiving, God's there. He's hearing you. Let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, may the prayer of our Lord Jesus Christ ring in our hearts that we might be one as you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are one. Help us in our infirmities to believe and live the truth of the security of being in Christ, your beloved Son. Continue to conform us to his image, giving us the mind of Christ by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Not surprisingly, the church of Philippi was not the only church experiencing problems of disunity. In his first letter to the church of Corinth, Paul has lots of material to deal with. 
Division on who to follow. I'm of Apollos. I'm of Paul. Uh, I'm a Peter. Division on allowable foods to eat, meat from idolatrous sacrifices or not. Division on gifts, the importance of speaking in tongues versus uh, prophecy. And the division on status in the Lord's Supper, waiting for the poor instead of uh, eating without them or eating uh, where there's nothing left. In the midst of this, in chapter 10, Paul warns them not to follow the example of the Israelites in the desert who, while receiving the blessings of protection, deliverance, food, and drink from the Lord's hand, were still idolatrous in their hearts. They were complaining, they were grumbling, among other sins. Paul reminds the Corinthians in verses 14 through 17, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak to you as wise men. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread, Jesus Christ. Well, if you've trusted in Christ, you are part of his body. If you've been baptized as a public acknowledgement of your connection to Christ, then you are invited to participate in this memorial. But on the point of unity, let me make it clear that as a church, we believe that when Paul commands us to examine or test ourselves, he is making the object of the test our unity with the rest of the body. He's making that test a unity with the rest of the body. Are you in fellowship with every brother and sister that you know in the church? Everybody? Are you joyfully partaking with your neighbor who is also part of the body of Christ? If not, Jesus says, leave your gift at the altar and go make it right. Consider this brother or sister better than yourselves. Trust in the Lord's resolution of any grievance that you have. Why? Because Christ forgave you. And God put you in Christ so that you might be like Christ. Paul closes chapter 10 with this personal observation. Just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. I seek their profit, that they may be saved. Again, this is a picture of unity, that they may be saved. Paul understands that the glory of unity, the glory of being one in Christ, is God's means of saving the world. So let's pray. O oh Lord God, our Heavenly Father, thank you for your perfect sacrifice on our behalf. Thank you for, your, for placing us in one body, Christ. Lord, remove any barrier to unity in our hearts as we commune with you in this meal. Equip us to serve you acceptably with reverence and godly fear that we may see this world saved. For we ask it in Jesus' name, and amen. Well, when you, there's a charge. When you fall short of the command to have the mind, the humility of Christ, don't be discouraged. Don't be discouraged, but call out in faith. Help my unbelief. Help my unbelief. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundant above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. To him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen.